Welcome to In the Sticks, a podcast about something, nothing, and everything all at once. Hope you guys are having a fantastic week. If you've been following along this far in our podcast, you know that our something is building a custom home. As of last Tuesday, we officially signed our contract, and so it's time to hurry up and wait. <laughs> um, I talked about it in the last episode. It's going to take some time for our funding to come through, but we did sign our contract, which means we were able to get the ball rolling on the funding. We signed, I don't know, what felt like 35 documents and got those sent to the bank, so hopefully hopefully we're squared away with all that stuff, and um, the funding will come through in six to eight weeks. You know, it's taken so long because there's a shortage of appraisers. It could take less time, shouldn't take any more than eight weeks, but we're hoping to break ground and, and start the actual building process at the beginning of the year, so we'll, we'll see how that goes. As you know, we were kind of struggling to get down to our target budget, and a big part of that was the, the lumber package being astronomically high, and we kind of weighed waiting until the lumber prices came down, but ultimately we decided that if we did that, there was actually a good possibility that the interest rates would go back up, and so what we were saving in the beginning probably would have cost us just as much or maybe even more in the long run uh, with a higher interest rate. So we decided to go ahead and move forward with the process. We scaled down the square footage a little bit. Well, a lot of it, actually. We knocked about 600 square feet off. We knew that wouldn't save us with the cost of lumber, um, but price per square foot, knocking off 600 square feet, it, it did save us a pretty significant amount. And, you know, we talked about the other things that we did to save us a little bit of money um, in the build process, and we finally got to a point where we were happy and we signed the contract. So, um, really, all, all we can do now is wait for the, the build process to start. Um, if you're looking at building a home in the near future, that you know, some things that you might want to consider, you know, for us personally, we I think I told you we built our last house as a custom build. And we had all the bells and whistles. That house was about 400 square feet smaller than the one that we're about to build. But we kind of splurged on the extra amenities. We, you know, we had granite throughout the whole house. We had tray ceilings. We had crown molding. We had a really nice um, wood look tile. We had the corbels over the the stove that pulled out in the spice racks. Um, you know, we had all kinds of stuff going in that house. Well, with this house, we've toned a lot of that stuff down. It's going to be pretty basic, but we wanted more square footage and we wanted a pool, so we knew we would have to make certain sacrifices to get to the point that we wanted to be. And I think we got there, so we're really looking forward to it. And really, on that front, there's there's not a whole lot new to report because we're kind of in the in the waiting phase now. We're going to be doing some work around the property to get it ready for the build. I mentioned last week we got all of the the tree limbs and stuff that were down during the ice storm out to the curb for pickup. Um, anything that's left over after pickup will probably just burn, do a controlled burn and get rid of all that stuff and get, get the place looking nice for the builders to start the build. I'll be posting pictures about our progress pretty regularly on our social media, In The Sticks Podcast on Instagram and at In The Sticks 2 on Twitter. 
Uh, we'll we'll be posting pictures of some of the work that we're doing to get this place prepped. We're going to be taking down some trees and clearing out some underbrush and that kind of stuff. So we'll have some we'll have some pictures to post in the meantime. We'll keep this thing rolling. Um, just because I enjoy doing it and I have a, a pretty fun topic. Well, I, I say fun. That's actually kind of morbid. Um, I have a topic to talk about that's interesting to me this week, and I'll go ahead and move into that. And that's presidential assassinations, everybody. As you know, yesterday was November 22nd, the 57th anniversary of the assassination of John F. Kennedy. And there was a lot of stuff on social media and some documentaries and stuff on TV that talked about the assassination. And I always get drawn into it this time of year because um, JFK seems to be the only president that they really talk about. Obviously, it was the most recent one, one of the most uh, memorable ones in the history of this country, but there have been others, and so I thought I would talk about those today and kind of learn a little bit about the suspects in each of these cases. So we're going to talk about presidential assassinations, the people who committed those assassinations, and then attempts and other stuff like that. So we'll get right into it. The first presidential assassination in the United States was none other than Abraham Lincoln. Honest Abe was killed on a Good Friday, April 14th, 19, I'm sorry, 1865. Got to get the right uh, century here. Um, he was killed in Ford's Theater in Washington, D.C. by John Wilkes Booth. Um, Mr. Booth approached the president in his box suite at the Ford's Theater during a play, walked up to him with a 44 caliber Derringer pistol and shot him in the back of the head before fleeing the theater. Um, I thought it was interesting that John Wilkes Booth's original plan was actually to kidnap Abraham Lincoln. He was an operative for the Confederate Army at the time, and he was going to kidnap the president and hold him hostage. And his release was contingent on the Union releasing a bunch of Confederate prisoners of war that they still had in custody. But upon discovering that... Abraham Lincoln was pushing for the voting rights of freed slaves, Mr. Booth decided that he had to kill the president instead. Booth was an actor at the Ford's Theater. Um, early in the day, on the day of the assassination, he went upstairs and he met an attendant in the hallway where the box suite was located that the president was going to be in. And he started making small talk with the attendant, and the attendant actually told him, yeah, this box suite right here is going to host the president and General Grant later tonight for the show. And without any further discussion, uh, Mr. Booth told the attendant, well, have a good afternoon, and then he left abruptly. Uh, later that evening, after the play had started, somewhere between probably the first and second act, Booth saddled up his mayor and rode to the theater. He parked his, I say he parked, he stopped his mayor uh, in a stable at the back of the theater, tied her up, and went in through the back door of the theater, but he left the door ajar so that he could have a quicker exit. He walked around to the front, and he kind of nonchalantly observed the crowd and watched the play for a little bit, and then he started to make his way to the second floor where the entrances to the box suites were. He entered the hallway just outside of President Lincoln's box suite, and there was an attendant there, who stopped him and said, Hey, I'm sorry, but the big man himself is in the room right there. You can't enter this hallway. And John Wilkes Booth, being the actor that he was, said, Oh, but I'm a senator, and the president has summoned me to his box because he has important messages to relay to me. And so the attendant bought off on it and let him through. 
So Booth walked down to the president's box suite and took a deep breath and walked through the door, and he was met by uh, Major Rathbone, who said, Oh, no, you cannot come in here. The president is in here. You are not allowed. Well, Booth knew that anybody who was with the president in the box suite probably knew that he did not summon a senator, so Booth turned around and walked out shut the door behind him, but apparently these doors to the box suites had peepholes that you could see into the suite. So he began to watch what was going on on inside the suite, and obviously him entering the room caused a little bit of concern, so he waited until things settled back down. And when the timing was just right, he flung the door open, he drew the Derringer and also um, a small knife that he had in his coat. He drew them both and approached the president from behind, raised the Derringer, and fired a single shot into the back of the president's head. He then got into a brief altercation with Major Rathbone and ended up cutting him with his knife, which got some distance between him and Major. And he jumped over the railing onto the stage. He made some sort of grand statement like, you know, Virginia has been avenged, and then he took off out the back door of the theater that he had previously left ajar, and he jumped on his horse and rode away. President Lincoln was taken across the street to receive medical attention, and he lived for about another eight hours in a coma before he passed away. Um, Booth was tracked down about 70 miles away in Virginia. He was confronted by Union soldiers, but he refused to surrender, and the Union soldiers, the Union soldiers, find your words, shot and killed him right there in the barn that he was located in. The next president that was assassinated was uh, killed about 16 years later, and that was President James Garfield. Uh, President Garfield had been in office for less than four months, and he decided that he wanted to go on a vacation with some of his cabinet members and some of his closest friends. So he went to the Baltimore and Potomac Railroad Station in Washington, D.C. His train was set to leave at about 9.30 in the morning. He got there at about 9.20. And on July 2nd, 1881, a man by the name of Charles Guiteau approached him at the railroad station and fired two shots directly into President Garfield. And the second one hit him in his lower back just above the kidney, and he ultimately died from his wounds. Guiteau fired two shots, and it was actually believed that his second shot was meant for Secretary of State Blaine, who was the only person that was there present with with the president. Uh, Before the assassination, uh, a policeman by the name of Kearney was at the depot, and he noticed Guiteau about 30 minutes before the president arrived. And what caught his attention was that Guiteau was acting really restless. He was pacing back and forth, and he actually seemed agitated. He also overheard Guiteau asking a hackman, which was like a taxi driver back then, if he could give him a ride away from the area in a hurry if he needed him to, and that obviously caught Kearney's attention, but before he could confront Guiteau about it, he noticed the president's car coming down the street, and he had to divert his attention to the president because it was his job to protect him, obviously. So President Garfield shows up, and he gets out, and he walks right up to Kearney, and he says, hey, how long until my train leaves? And he looked at his watch and he said, well, Mr. President, it's 9.20 now. Your, your train's scheduled to leave at 9.30, so it'll be about 10 minutes. 
So the president thanked him and turned to walk away. And as soon as he turned around, uh, Kearney heard the first shot. He already had his back facing the president. So when he swung around, um, he heard the second shot before he could react when he saw Guiteau with a, a pistol raised towards the president. And the president fell and Guiteau started to run towards the hackman that he had tried to summon previously, but he was apprehended before he could even make it to the street. Um, the murder weapon was recovered from Guiteau's jacket pocket, and he was taken to the police department. When he got to the police department, there was uh, an officer in the precinct that recognized Guiteau. He said, hey, I, I know who this guy is. Uh, he was just here a week ago. He asked if he could get a tour of the place, but, you know, it was a Sunday, and visiting hours were on Monday, so I told him to go away. And the detective thought that was pretty interesting, so he asked Guiteau, what, what were you doing here? And Guiteau very nonchalantly said, well, I, I wanted to see the quarters that I would soon be housed in. <clears throat> so he knew what he was going to do, and apparently he knew the outcome because he was checking out his future home for who knows how long. They later found a note in Guiteau's breast pocket that was addressed to the White House, and it basically said that, uh, you know, the president's death was a political necessity to protect the Republican Party. He said he had no ill will towards the president. Um, however... Uh, it was later discovered that Guiteau desperately wanted to be the ambassador to France, and he was passed up for that role, so authorities think that that may have had something to do with with the assassination. Uh, Guiteau was tried and convicted and was eventually hanged in Washington, D.C., almost a year after the assassination. I thought it was interesting that uh, Ulysses S. Grant, who was actually present during Abraham Lincoln's assassination was still in charge of the troops when Garfield was assassinated and Abraham Lincoln's son was the Secretary of War for President Garfield when he was assassinated. So I thought that was kind of interesting. Uh, a little bit more time would pass before the next presidential assassination, about 26 years to be exact. Uh, on September 6, 1901, President William McKinley was shot and killed. Uh, he died... 14 days later, after his wounds became gangrenous, and he had died he died from the infections. But President McKinley was attending a Pan American exposition in Buffalo, New York, when he was approached by a man uh, of Prussian descent, so forgive me if I butcher his last name, but his name was Leon Cholkoz, Chok C-Z-O-L-G-O-S-Z. I'm just going to call him Leon. <laughs> Leon shot the president twice in the abdomen with a revolver that was covered by a woman's handkerchief. Leon was the son of Prussian immigrants who was born in Michigan. Uh, he described himself as an anarchist, but he didn't really participate in the organization of any activities because he was pretty shy and soft-spoken. Uh, he did sometimes participate in anarchist activity like, you know, labor violence and that sort of thing. Um, but growing up, his father owned a saloon, so Leon spent his childhood years surrounded by tobacco, alcohol, prostitutes, and general anarchy. Uh, he was unable to hold a steady job, apparently due to health reasons, and so when he was healthy, when he was feeling good, he spent his working days as a day laborer. Uh, it was believed that he felt disenfranchised by his socioeconomic status, and after he shot the president, apparently he stated something to the effect of, I've done my duty. I shot the president because he was the enemy of the people, the good, working people. I killed President McKinley because I'd done my duty. I didn't believe one man should have so much service 
and another man should have none. Leon refused to defend himself in court and was quickly convicted of the assassination and later died by the electric chair. And that, of course, brings us to the incident that kind of sparked my interest in this, and that was the assassination of President John F. Kennedy 62 years later on November 22, 1963. Uh, President Kennedy was traveling through Daly Plaza in the West End in Dallas in a convertible with his wife, Jacqueline Onassis, and um, I guess she wasn't Jacqueline Onassis at the time, uh, but with his wife, Jacqueline Kennedy, along with the governor of Texas, Governor Connolly, and his wife. Lee Harvey Oswald fired several rounds from the sixth floor of the Texas School Book Depository. The first shot struck the president in his back. It exited through his neck and then went through the back of Governor Connolly, out his chest, through his wrist, and into his thigh. The second shot that Oswald fired struck Kennedy in the back of the head and was ultimately the fatal shot. The motorcade immediately traveled to Parkland Hospital, where the president was pronounced dead. Governor Connolly eventually would recover from his wounds. Lee Oswald grew up a troubled youth. Um, he lived with his mother until he was about a year old, and she gave him up to a boy's home. And he lived in the boy's home from when he was about oh, 13 months, I think, uh, until he was four. His mother had gotten remarried by that time, so she decided to take him back in. He lived in 15 different locations from ages 4 to 13 because his stepfather's job was constantly relocating them. He was an aggressive youth. He would, he would throw rocks at kids riding their bicycles down the street in front of their house, and he was always truant from school. His mother eventually divorced his stepfather, and she and Lee... Uh, went to live with his older brother in New York City for a short period of time, but the brother kicked him and his mom out, and they went back to live in New Orleans. He joined the Marines when he was only 17 years old, presumably to get away from his mom. He had some pretty persistent disciplinary issues while he was in the military. Um, he was caught possessing an unauthorized weapon, and he, at one point, deliberately spilled a drink on an officer in order to try to provoke a fight. He was obviously adverse to any, any type of authority, and that kept his military career relatively short. He was discharged from the Marines for what they said health re was re health-related reasons. And after he was discharged, he tried to defect to the Soviet Union. He spent two years in Russia and came back to the United States when he was 22 years old. He then went to Mexico uh, in an attempt to seek asylum in Cuba and was unsuccessful at doing that. So he moved back to Dallas and got a job at the Texas School Book Depository Building when he was 24 years old. So on the morning of November 22, 1963, he showed up to work at 7.30 like he did every other morning. But on this day, he was carrying an elongated package that was wrapped in paper. One of his co-workers asked him what it was, and he said something to the effect of, oh, these are just curtains for the office or something like that. So the co-worker didn't think anything about it. And later on in the morning at about 11.45, the Kennedys joined the Connollys in the open-air Lincoln a convertible limousine to embark on their journey through downtown Dallas. And right at 12.30, as the limo tra traveled through Daly Plaza, the first shot entered President Kennedy's back, and within seconds, the second shot had killed him. Um, 
<clears throat> a Dallas patrol officer actually confronted Oswald immediately after the shooting in the book depository building, but one of his co-workers vouched for him. He said, eh, no, he works here. He's good. So the officer let him go. It, it wasn't too long after that that a description of Oswald was broadcast over the police radio as being a suspect in the president's assassination. At about 1.15 in the afternoon, Officer Tippett saw Oswald. Officer Tippett was a police officer with the Dallas Police Department. He saw Oswald in a car and noticed that he matched the description that was given out over the radio, so he tried to contact Oswald. He got out of his car and began to walk towards him, and Oswald shot him three times in the chest and then once in the side of the head, killing Officer Tippett. Um, he fled back to his house, changed his clothes in order to try to alter his appearance a little bit anyways, and then he took off walking again from his apartment. But he quickly heard sirens in the area, so he uh, ducked into a nearby theater. Police surrounded the theater within moments, and uh, at about 1.51 in the afternoon, Oswald was taken into custody for the murder of Officer Tippett. After that, police started to question him about both murders, and... Oswald initially denied being involved in either, and then he just stopped talking altogether. At 11.30 that night, after Lyndon Johnson was already sworn in as the new president, Oswald was formally charged with the president's murder. Two days later, while he was being escorted out of the police department, Lee Harvey Oswald was shot and killed on live television by a local Dallas nightclub owner by the name of Jack Ruby. Obviously, there's a lot of speculation surrounding JFK's assassination and Lee Harvey's uh, involvement in that. You know, Lee Harvey himself said that he was a patsy, that he was set up. JFK was not liked by a lot of people. He, he wasn't liked by the, the mob. The Cubans hated him. The Russians hated him. Hell, his wife probably hated him. There's, you know, there was allegations abound about him having extramarital affairs with famous celebrities, including Marilyn Monroe. Uh, but the Warren Commission was formed to investigate the assassination and ultimately concluded that Lee Harvey Oswald acted alone and that Jack Ruby also acted alone when he murdered Lee Harvey. Um, it was believed that Jack Ruby killed Lee Harvey uh, to cover up the government's involvement in the assassination of JFK. There's, there's all kinds of conspiracy theories out there that are pretty crazy, but um, ultimately the Warren Commission said these two individuals acted alone when they did what they did, and they kind of left it at that from an official standpoint, and then from there the conspiracies just keep growing. So those those are the presidents that have been assassinated in our country's history. I think it's also worth noting that Teddy Roosevelt was nearly killed on October 14th of 1912 when John Flaming Shrank shot him once in the chest with a 38 caliber revolver. Uh, Teddy had finished his first term in office and he was actually out of the office for about three and a half years and decided to run for a second term with a new party and he was on the campaign trail he was about to make a speech he had his campaign speech um, which was 50 pages folded over twice in his uh, jacket breast pocket and he had um, a metal glasses case that was also in the same pocket and it was believed that those two things stacked up stopped the bullet from entering his body and so uh, he, he did not die, and then in uh, March of 1982, Ronald Reagan was returning to his motorcade after giving a speech at the Washington Hilton when John Hinckley Jr. fired several bullets at him, wounding him and three others. Um, he wasn't shot directly, Reagan wasn't. Uh, one of the rounds ricocheted off of a car and then entered Reagan under his arm. He suffered a broken rib and a collapsed lung, and 
some other internal injuries, but ultimately he made a full recovery. Uh, Hinckley said that he shot the president to impress the actress Jodie Foster. He was found to be mentally ill, and he was institutionalized, and he was actually released from the hospital in 2016. I actually remember when that happened. And according to the interwebs, uh, uh, Andrew Jackson, William Taft, Herbie Hoover, FDR, Harry Truman, Richard Nixon, Gerald Ford, Jimmy Carter, George H.W., Bill Clinton, Barack Obama, and the Donald have all had plots and or attempts against their lives. Um, also, in 1923, Warren Harding died while in office. President Harding died while in office. Um, he was actually out on a voyage of understanding to meet with voters and discuss issues, but he died as a result of a heart attack following a pneumonia diagnosis. However, after his death, his wife refused an autopsy, and so I, there's some speculation that she was actually involved in his death after she found out he was unfaithful in their marriage. So scandalous. So there you have it. Those are the assassinations and uh, assassination plots against the presidents of our great country. Hopefully nothing like that happens again. That's obviously incredibly destabilizing to our economy and to, uh, and to our country when, uh, when a president is suddenly and maliciously taken out of service like that. So let's hope and pray nothing like that ever happens again in the future. Uh, if you don't like the candidate, vote to get him out in four years. I say that. I, I, you know, most of these suspects had some, some pretty severe mental health issues that were probably undiagnosed at the time. Uh, but looking back, they, they obviously had some issues that caused them to go as far as they did. But let's hope that that doesn't happen in the future. Or obviously, security measures for the president are much better than they were, um, let's say, in 1865. And now to finish off the episode, our dumb criminal of the week. This one. I love this one. We're going to spotlight Mr. Albert Bailey up there in Connecticut. Mr. Bailey and his associates were in need of some quick cheese, an easy score, a little extra scratch for their pocketbooks, you know what I'm saying? So how do you do that? Well, you rob a bank. They were trying to think of the perfect heist. They didn't want to get caught, so they were trying to think, how do we minimize our time inside the bank but still make off with a big score? After thinking about this, it's probably is a, a good measure of their intellect. After thinking about this for a long time, they finally decided on the perfect plot. And it's a double positive because this is especially sensitive to, you know, socially distancing and minimizing intimate contact with other individuals. What they do? They said, aha, we shall call the bank in advance and let them know we're going to rob you. And that's what they did. They called the bank in advance of their violent felony to warn the bank of their imminent shenanigans in order for the bank to have enough time to gather the maximum amount of bounty they could possibly shove into the bags to give to the robber. Shortly after calling the bank, they showed up in a car, parked it directly outside of the front doors, and Mr. Bailey walked in with a handwritten note that said, Hey, we're the jackwagons that just called to say we were going to rob you, so uh, where's the loot? Obviously, officers were already on scene. They were hiding in the back, and when Mr. Bailey arrived, they pounced on him, took him into custody without further incident, and they also were able to apprehend the cohorts in the vehicle 
outside. Obviously, Mr. Bailey and his associates probably have never stolen anything more than like an abandoned child's bicycle in an alleyway somewhere. Hashtag, you can't make this stuff up. Oh my goodness. All right, folks, I hope you've enjoyed this. I know I sure have. Please follow us on Instagram at In The Sticks Podcast. We're on Twitter at In The Sticks 2. I hope you guys have a fantastic week. God bless you and God bless America. Oh, 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 oh